You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. All right, back at it. It is Play-By-Play Cast, episode number 184, the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by one. It's a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. We found out this week the NBA is returning July 31st. Still don't know about baseball, so Scott Fransky has some time on his hands. And he's a guest this week on PXP Cast. He's the radio voice of the Philadelphia Phillies. If you missed last week's episode 183, it's with Dwayne Stats of the Tampa Bay Rays, their TV voice, Marv Albert. He'll be a little bit busier now in August with the NBA returning. Uh, he was our guest on episode number 182, the voice of the NBA on TNT. Larry Kahn from Sports USA Radio. Uh, fingers crossed for an NFL season that uh, works out as best as possible. Um, he was episode number 181, if you want to go back uh, through the archives here. You can find the podcast on social media at PXPCast. I am at Joel Godet, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U. It's been a heck of a week, folks. Uh, <laughs> I know some of the people that listen to this podcast know why, because they have applied but at Ball State, we have an opening for a women's basketball broadcaster and my uh, football sidelines guy on our, our football broadcast as well, guy or girl, uh, on our, our football broadcast too. So we advertised the position this week, and in the first four hours, I think I got 60 emails. We are up to, as we record this podcast, 120 five 125 people have applied to be the voice of ball state women's basketball and our football sideline reporter as well uh it has been incredible um because i've i've tried to not 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 tried to i've done uh i have sat down and listened to every demo that every person has sent in and replied to each and every one of them here to start things off just to say thanks listen to your stuff um, you know, here's what I thought was, was good. A couple of things that jumped out at me and, um, we'll go from here. And it's been enlightening to just see how different people apply, what different people say. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess there's always, <laughs> whenever you go to like, how do you professionally present yourself courses? Or when you're in college, they say like, here's a, here's an example of a cover letter and here's an example of a resume. So I guess you see those things anyway. But uh, when you are the hirer, so to speak, it's just, it's fascinating to see uh, what people send, how they send it, how they present themselves and to kind of get the perspective of uh, the way different people go about things. Because, you know, when you're, I'm 33 years old, like anytime I send anything or have sent anything in my career to anybody, like I, I know what I've sent and, and how I do it. Uh, it's just, it's wild to see 
the variety of different ways that people approach uh, reaching out um, for jobs. And uh, and I've enjoyed going through all of these resumes. It's been a lot, um, but I've really enjoyed the process and looking forward to seeing uh, where we go from here with it and uh, who we wind up selecting for it. So I uh, just wanted to start off on that note today. And if you hear my email ping while we're going here, uh, like I, I think I got a resume at four in the morning. <laughs> I have to go back and look at timestamps. They have they've been coming in fat. Yep, four forty seven a.m. I got one. Uh, Two o four a.m. Four forty seven a.m. And then it will all was clear until eight thirty. Uh, but I uh, I've been getting a bunch, so it's been cool. Scott Fransky is a guy that knows, and there is my email. <laughs> Scott Fransky is a guy that knows uh, about applying for positions and betting on himself. Scott was, quote unquote, in the major leagues um, in the early 2000s, late 90s, uh, late 90s, um, 1997, 1998, was doing you know pre and post for the Texas Rangers and wanted to do play by play. And he bet on himself and left the major leagues and left a big market and left his home market. And he went to Chicago and he became the play-by-play voice of the Kane County Cougars in the low A Midwest League and took that experience and got himself back to the major leagues, back in his home market in Texas in 2002. And then eventually he joined the Philadelphia Phillies um, in 2006 and through time uh, has morphed into his current role as their lead radio play-by-play voice. So we talk a lot in this episode with Scott about that journey and the believing in yourself and the betting on yourself and the improvement that he saw and that he went through and how he went about it early on in his career. And then we'll dive into his experience with the Phillies as well. Uh, Larry Anderson was one of his first partners um, with the Phillies. And one of the things he was told was, you know, the Phillies wanted him to shine. So we'll talk about setting up your analyst and making him shine and trying to put him in the best possible position. Good conversation with Scott Fransky that I hope you'll enjoy here on episode number 184 of PXPCast. So the one thing I thought was interesting, um, because we have a lot of conversations on this podcast about how there's no one way to get to anywhere um, in this business and how everybody's path is is unique and sometimes irreplicable. Um, and I, I thought yours was interesting from the standpoint of being in Texas and going to minor league baseball and leaving a major league team, although not the position you ultimately wanted, to go to the minors and, and get that experience, which then led you to, to winding up back in the majors. Um, and I've read and I've heard you talk about the rationales for you know, go and do play by play on a day in and day out basis. But um, I was curious if you can kind of take me into your thought process about the maybe the nervousness of leaving the majors in a major market and um, moving away from the idea of kind of being around and maybe being that guy that becomes a next man up possibility because you're around big league teams a lot and rolling the dice going down to, to the Midwest League. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, it was a little bit of a roll in the dice, but I don't know. I mean, it was also kind of calculated. I mean, I thought a lot about it Um, at that point in my life. I was doing talk show stuff for Texas. I was working for the the radio station, but I was around the ball club and I was around the broadcast and and I was on pre and post game. um, But I wasn't getting any reps to do baseball 
play by play. I was getting reps to do say high school football, small college football, high school basketball. It just wasn't much baseball. And it really was the two guys with the Rangers at the time, uh, Eric Nadell and Vince Catronio, they both really just sort of said, look, if you're going to do this, you have to find out a, if you can, um, because, you know, doing a game here and there is a whole lot different than trying to do it every single week, um, every single night, uh, six times a week, I should say. So, uh, you know, and the other flip side that was you may not like it. <laughs> you may not like working that much. Um, you know, suddenly maybe I would be a lot more interested in a football gig or something <laughs> like that. Um but I, I I had a pretty good inkling that I didn't want to be stuck in the studio, that I just didn't get the same thrill that I would from being uh, at the field, whether it's baseball, football, or you know courtside or whatever. Right. I wanted to, I wanted to be at the event. I wanted to do events, and um, so. Uh, you know, uh, I think you're right in that there's no one way. Uh, but for me, it just seemed like, look, I'm going to have to get some reps somehow. Um, and yes, while I could sit around and wait for that, maybe some guy gets sick and uh, you get a chance in a pinch and they say, yeah, we really enjoyed it. But you're really not gaining any ground. You know what I mean? Right. Um because you're not learning how to get better. And, uh, and I think, I don't know. I mean, it probably doesn't matter what you're doing in the world, whether it's broadcasting or sales or anything under the sun, um, experience makes all the difference and doing it over and over again makes you better and better. And, uh, so I think that's, that was invaluable for me. It sounds logical now, but how much convincing of yourself did it take at that time to make that actual jump and, and buy into that and sell it to yourself? Yeah, it, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when I was, I go back three or four years before that. And, um, when I first got out of college, I didn't really want to leave, uh, Dallas. I didn't want to leave a big market. I had gone to school at SMU and uh, made some inroads. And a lot of my colleagues in the in in you know journalism school, they were talking about you know maybe starting out as a reporter in a you know small town or small market, something like that. And and uh, I just didn't really want to do that at that time. Um, And I didn't want. I didn't really want to leave. You know, Texas, uh, I mean, I, I wanted it to to happen, but I also, again, knew that – or I got convinced. I, I think it's basically just came down to the fact that Eric and Vince convinced me that I needed to go practice. I needed to go learn how to do it. How'd the first season in Ken County go? Or maybe how'd the first month in Ken County go? <laughs> uh, the first night in Kane County, we <laughs> were about – two minutes into our broadcast and it started raining and they pulled the tarp and I had no idea what I was supposed to do. If I was supposed to keep it for an interview or if I was supposed to send it back to the studio, like we had never, I was just trying to get the equipment set up and <laughs> we had never discussed what to do in the event of a rain delay. And, uh, 
so I was pretty much, you know, uh, I was just stammering on the air, but, uh, um, I ended up finally taking a break and, uh, I went, uh, we had a guy on our team, uh, Derek Wathen was his name. He was our shortstop, a young kid and his dad, John Wathen. Uh, obviously with his baseball background uh, was in the stands uh, to watch Derek play. And um, I knew he had been there. I hadn't met him, but I had heard he was there. So I took a commercial break and I said, just keep it in commercial as long as you can. And I'm going to try to get an interview to put on the air. So I ran down into the stadium and, and, uh, found him and pulled him aside and he was great. He came on the air with me for about 20 minutes and, uh, got me through my first rain delay. So, and actually now, uh, his other son, uh, Dusty Wathen is uh, yeah. the third base coach with the Phillies. So I've, I've talked about that and I've, you know, caught up with, uh, not only Derek, but also John uh, a couple of times through the years. I came very close to interviewing Batman during a rain delay once. So is that right? Yeah, that would have been so cool. <laughs> I don't know yeah. how, how he would have taken it because you know not yeah. the real guy, but um, yeah. have fun with it. I think that I, I think when you first start out in those first you know that first month of there's a lot of you know just learning and you it's going by so fast um, and you're just trying to keep your head above water and you know you start to realize what they were t- what you know what Eric and Vince were talking about in terms of doing it every single day and the, right. the, rep- the repetition of it. Um, you know, how many times in a week do you call a ground ball or the shortstop? <laughs> right. I mean, and that's the kind of stuff that you don't get a chance to, you know, vary your delivery. If you're doing one high school game a week um, or it's, I wouldn't say you don't get the chance, but you just, it's not the same. It takes a lot longer to develop that. Um, if you're not doing it 140 times a year, you know, that kind of thing, Uh, 140 games a year or whatever. I was going to ask what you learned. Um, but I mean, that's a big piece of it, but also, uh, what did you learn about covering a team day in and day out as a broadcast voice, as opposed to, you know, the role you had on a broadcast team previously? Yeah, I think um, one of the things I discovered quickly, uh, at least, and I haven't found that this necessarily translates um, as you go up the ladder, but um, at that level, it was low A ball. And, you know, the honest truth is your listeners are, uh, you know, the, the moms and dads of the players. They are the host moms and dads, the host families, and they are girlfriends and um, maybe just a few assorted baseball nuts. Now, again, my my experience may be a little bit different because, you know, we're on the radio. King County is basically Chicago. Right. And we're on the radio in suburban Chicago. And so I don't know, maybe it's different in a small market more just random fans want to know what the local minor league team is doing, but we didn't, our situation wasn't like that. So what I found was that I was really, I mean, I'm broadcasting to friends and family, you know? Um, and it, man, it was fast when, if I had ever said something that, uh, a friend or family didn't think was cool or, I was criticizing or whatever. 
by the time I pulled on the bus after the game, I was hearing about it already. And this is in the early days of, you know, cell phones and, you know, it wasn't like the crazy texting. Like they were getting, they were on the phone already. <laughs> by the time I got on the bus, they're like, yeah, my mom said, you said X, Y, Z. And I'd be like, well, <laughs> I, we can go back and listen to the tape. Um, I think your mom heard X, Y, Z when the truth is I said, you know, ABC. Um, <laughs> and usually the players are, you know, I mean, again, you get to know them really well and way I mean, you're on the bus with them all the time and you're around them all the time and there's not 10 other 20 other media people around. It's like you and the ball club yeah, and three coaches, you know, and the bus driver like that. That's that's the universe that you live within. And uh, so you get to know those guys pretty good and, and uh, their families get to know you as well. And uh, and they'll let you know if uh, they didn't think you were fair to their son. You know? It's interesting from I mean, you wound up in, in Kane County for three years. You wind up back in Texas. But I thought one of the other interesting pieces of it was the idea of betting on yourself again, because when you got the Phillies job, you had almost said to yourself, you know, I wanted to call more play by play. Maybe I'll go back to the minor leagues again. Um, yeah. How different was that process of maybe of maybe of coming to grips with being OK, making that decision uh, the second time through after you'd been in the big leagues in a more expanded role? Yeah. So the first year back in the big leagues uh, or the first year back with Texas um, in 2002, I guess it was, I think I did 25 games as the number two announcer. And the next year I didn't do any um, sort of the domino effect changed. Um, and so that position really wasn't there. And then I think, was one game the year after that and then maybe five or six games in uh 05 and uh and it just wasn't it wasn't going to change um you know uh i didn't feel like it was going to change i felt like uh at the time um they had actually made a change um uh with the uh with the number two announcer you know vince was uh not renewed and and they hired victor rojas and and at the time the president of the club really wanted an ex-player as the second voice um and that's something you know that's a role i could not fill um and um that honestly in terms of betting on myself i i I gotta give a lot of credit to my wife because i think it was her more than anybody that that sort of embraced the idea that look you're not happy doing this studio stuff uh, you know, you were here once before and you left for a reason. And, um, you know, she, I think, was the one who really felt, you know, said that she believed in me that um, that, you know, that it was going to happen for me somewhere. And I, I just I just felt like I was getting, um, you know, my my skills were I, I wasn't doing anything for myself. Mm. Um, it's in terms of being a play-by-play announcer, it wasn't growing. I wasn't growing. I wasn't getting reps. I wasn't getting exposure. I wasn't getting experience. It just, um, yeah, just, I, I just felt like I, I didn't, I, it was kind of like a doomsday scenario. I didn't want to go back to the minor leagues, obviously. <laughs> um, but I just wasn't happy. Um, doing that and um there were a couple of minor league opportunities 
Uh, there were a couple of major league opportunities. Um, it was a busy off season and, um, you know, for, I was really lucky to end up where I ended up. Networking is such a big like buzzword of what everybody does nowadays. Um, and having to create relationships and having the right relationships and, and, uh, I'm one that always like, it's just inherent with how I am socially. Like I'm always very careful like I, whenever you you talk to people, you're like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Like I got to do this the right way. Um, and I, I liked the anecdote you talked about. You were on Donnie Barnes's podcast a few years ago and you talked about your interview in Houston and they told you that they liked you, but they didn't think you wanted the job enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that, that you told that to the Phillies when you interviewed yeah. for their job. And my first reaction was like, oh my God, like my, in my mind, I'm like, I, I can't say that to another team. Like, that's not the right thing to say. Um, take me through well, what yeah. that was like. Okay, so, um, I, you know, I interviewed the, – the interview process with Houston was fine. I went down there, I interviewed. Um, I didn't uh, hear anything back from them. Uh, I read that someone else got the job, and um, – and I called the Astros after the fact and, and, and sort of inquired and it took me a while to get them on the phone and um, literally three or four days before I headed to Philadelphia, I finally talked to um, the club president with Houston that had been in as part of the interview. And uh, that's when I've heard the, you know, we just didn't feel like you wanted the job um, mm. enough. And um it, you know, it was, again, I felt like maybe what they meant was like, I don't know if I played it. Like, I, I don't, I don't really know fully what they meant, but <laughs> what I wanted to get across to them was to the Phillies was look, I'm, I'm here. This is really important to me. <laughs> I want to be here. I want to do this. And if you could, you know, I don't know how I'm going to sound. I don't know how I'm going to come across an email. And believe, believe me, I didn't tell the Phillies president, David Montgomery, this. Um, okay. I told the, you know, I told the broadcast manager, you know, Rob Brooks was the guy who, uh, who, you know, we had built a little bit of a rapport. We had talked on the phone a bunch. And, sure. And he was kind of the first line of communication in that um, I – you know, like I had told him, I said, look, uh, like, for instance, when I went to interview, they didn't know if they wanted a play by play person or not. Yeah. So I, you know, he knew because we talked and we talked pretty openly. We were very upfront with one another. And so I felt like I had enough of a rapport um, <laughs> with Rob that when he drove me from the airport to, to the to the. Uh, ballpark for the interview and it's a short ride and you know it's just kind of a small talk conversation but i said yeah you know i talked to houston <laughs> she told me i you know maybe didn't didn't come across like i really wanted the job and I, so i said look let me assure you i want the job if there's play-by-play -play to be had i want it so um yeah, right, wrong or otherwise <laughs> it worked out i guess well it's one of those things that like as i heard it I, I just thought to myself like that it it's almost like a bold like to to go into to go into any interview situation and say to anybody even when you have a rapport with like the elephant in the like listen I want like I want the job like I'm here yeah. I'm here I want it clearly I want it I wouldn't be here otherwise it's almost like well you can't do that like you can't let them know that you want it that way 
Um, yeah. Well, you know, I think part of it, um, and, and maybe maybe I'm wrong, but and every employer would be different, every level would be different. But I think when you when you say, uh, you know, I mean, you you want as a as somebody who hires somebody, hmm. like for instance, in the minor leagues, um, what do they always tell you? Uh, they always tell you we we're going to hire you to be a broadcaster, but you're going to have to do other things. Yeah. Right. So they don't want somebody who's so stuck in their ways that they can't embrace pulling tarp, sweeping an aisle, right. uh, sending out a press release, uh, flipping a burger if need be. Like, you know what I mean? Like they want, they need the most versatile, open, uh, accommodating employees they can possibly find right. to make their business work. Right. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, at this level in the major leagues, they're not necessarily looking for that, but they want to know that somebody is like excited to be there. Right. <laughs> they want to know that, you know, um, and trust me, there's enough of us in this business that at certain days we can act like we don't want to be there. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and some of them, some of them might be in our broadcast booth on a pretty <laughs> daily basis. But uh, so they, they, you know, I just think it's okay to let them know. It's okay to let somebody know you want the job. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and again, yes, you're like you said, you're there. Of course, you're you're there to interview. Of course, you want the job. But do you really? Right? Why not go the extra mile and and say, look. This is really important to me. I am, you know, this is not just another job or not just another job interview for me. This is what I want. This is my dream or this is the, the position for me or whatever, you know. And again, whether it's broadcasting or sales or, you know, um, medicine or whatever, you know, you want to people want to hire somebody who wants to be there. Yeah. Um I, I want to ask you about your broadcast booth now. Um, and uh, there was a great anecdote where you, you talked about getting to the Phillies. And when you started doing play-by-play, they said they thought Larry Anderson was the funniest man in the room. And they wanted that to come out more on the air. Um, and that you kind of looked at your early responsibility as that being your number one goal. Uh, walk me through a little bit your approach in working with a guy like Larry and how you went about saying to yourself, um, yes, I'm going to call the game. That's obviously very important. But there's also going to be a segment of my brain that is dedicated to how I'm going to make this man shine. Yeah. Well, and uh, it's 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 second nature to most TV announcers, I think. Um, guys who do games on TV because they're constantly setting up the analyst. Mm. They're constantly leaving a room for the analyst. It's, I think far more difficult. Um, it's not more difficult. It's a different process in radio because you still have to focus on the play by play part of it. And I think, um, for me, um, one thing it, I think one thing it really helped me with early on, because we're talking about a stretch there where I didn't do very many games for a long time. And, so I was, you know, rusty in my own mind. Right. Uh, and so I needed to work back up to it. And I was doing the first year, two innings a night. Um, so that wasn't an overwhelming task. Uh, and again, I could come on there. It allowed me to be as basic as possible with my play by play, my descriptions, 
you know, as solid mechanically as I could be and, and then leave everything else for Larry, right? Leave all the other additional space for the crowd and for Larry. And so if I needed to push Larry, um, then I had plenty of time to do so. Uh, if I needed to quiz Larry or question Larry or engage him in some other way, uh, to set him up, um, then I had time to do so because I was it, like literally my, I felt like my play by play was as rudimentary as it comes because that's all I needed to be. You know, that's all I needed to be because I could then rely on him, um, to be himself, which was, it was obvious right away <laughs> to me, you know, what a natural card he was and what a natural showman he was, um, you know, on the air or off. <laughs> and, uh, I think at times on the air, he could feel, um, you know, you know, whatever he's worried about maybe saying the wrong thing or, um, you know, whatever. But I think the, the, the fact of the matter that I could simply just do a really simple broadcast and let him handle most of the rest of it was really good for me. Um, now, as the years went on, I, I feel like we were able to do more and more and, you know, we got to know each other better and better. And, you know, the rapport thing just comes along with it. And, and, uh, so it's not hard now for me to engage him, you know, like I just know who he is and where he wants to go and the kind of dumb stuff he wants to say <laughs> and you know, stuff like that. But, um, and I kind of, uh, also now I, you know, over 10 years into doing this with him, I have a way better appreciation for what our fans and what our listeners like from him. Right. And yeah. I think that's, like there's something to be like, again, I, we have a responsibility to call the game and to broadcast the game and to tell what's happening and all those other things, but we're also trying to entertain people. And there's a lot of nights where the game isn't entertaining. So we better be if we want people to listen. And so I feel like I have a pretty good handle on, you know, what people like. And, um, you know, at least I hope I do. The answer to this might be as, simple as what you just said as well, but the majority of your play-by-play experience before coming to the Phillies was solo. Um, so what was your thought process or worry or concern or, or how much did you think about, all right, what, how different is it going to be for me calling a game with a person sitting next to me and with a former player sitting next to me and the ways that you have to engage that person as opposed to if it was um, you know, a secondary broadcaster who was sitting next to you as well. Yeah, uh, it was a, definitely, it's, it was an adjustment. And then for me to do it with just one guy for 10 years, <laughs> um, and then to suddenly be asked to do it with other people, um, it's like, that was a challenge as well, because uh, again, you're so used to one guy's personality and you know what he's going to say, you know what he wants to talk about, you know what, I mean, I, the easy buttons things, to push. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, but, but uh, like, seriously, I, I've heard all of his stories. Like I've heard <laughs> all his stories and I could tell most of them now. Um, and I, I can't say I can tell him as well as he does, but 
the the point is like something happens in a game and I see the wheel spinning in his head. I can see the light behind his eyes. It's, you know, here we here we come with the you know the <laughs> you know Renee Latchman story or here we come with the you know the story about Dennis Eckersley and here's comes the story about you know you know the Camaro that he bought with his signing bonus or something like that so um it is it is a different thing because again you uh as a minor league announcer generally have to call the game and then do the analysis, right? So you roll back in with something, you're analyzing the play or analyzing the next pitch or whatever. Um, You know, I guess it probably helped me that I didn't go straight from one way of doing it to the other. Sure. Um, You know, with that break, um, you know, having not done, I mean, if you go from doing the minor leagues and every night you're doing, you know, the whole game by yourself, no partner, whatever. And then, okay, tomorrow you're going to start doing it with a partner for the rest of your life. Um, you know, that can be an adjustment, but, uh, but I think for me, probably it helped that, you know, again, like I said a minute ago, get in there, very basic, very basic descriptions, and then let the other guy do his, you know, his, as we say, shtick, um, you know, so. Who'd you, uh, who'd you learn from? Like who taught you the, or, or who did you listen to, to teach you play by play as you started out, I guess, in Kane County or, or even before then? Well, I think, uh, I, I, I mean, um, there, I've, I've not had a bigger, uh, influence on my career than Eric Nadell from a professional standpoint. Sure. Um, Eric, uh, and, and, and that, that goes way beyond, just the time I've spent with Eric. Uh, I mean, I did my first big league game next to Eric, which given that I was a kid who grew up listening to Eric, um, was pretty special for me. And, um, I I don't know, you know, I mean, I was uh, Mark Holtz who had done the Rangers when I was younger. Um, but, was sick and then uh, later died really before I was sort of in the, in the, you know, the Rangers. Uh, well, I just wasn't doing it. I think my first year freelancing over there was, I think Mark's last year uh, of doing any kind of play by play. But, but Mark was the guy that I, man, I, I wanted to be Mark Holtz. Mm-hmm. Um, like that, I wouldn't say I wanted to be him, but he was the first, he and Eric, I remember going, you know, with my friends, we would, we would listen to the games on the radio and, uh, the Rangers were terrible. I mean, they were just terrible year after year. And, uh, you know, they would show these signs of life, you know, in the late eighties or whatever. And the Ruben Sierra, or Bobby Witt, or, you know, these, these people you think are going to make a big difference. And, you know, Bobby Valentine had been the manager then. And, and, uh, you know, so it was sort of on the up, up, you know, on the rise, but, um, uh, but they were always out of it by, you know, June or July. And, you know, for most people in, in that part of the world, the Rangers were like this thing that you did until the Cowboys started. <laughs> uh, it was just like a pat. I mean, it literally was the idea of a pastime. It was like, ah, you know, we'll go to the old ball yard and, 
watch some ball and get a free souvenir cup and uh you know and whatever they win or they lose it doesn't matter we'll still have the cowboys in the fall um that's kind of how people looked at it but my friends and i we were big baseball junkies and and uh we spent a lot of a lot of hours you know listening to the games on the radio and um so uh, you know i've i've learned from mark just by listening um i learned from eric just by listening and i learned a lot more from eric um by being around him uh, watching him work um he and uh, vince catronio who's, uh, you know, now been with the A's yeah, for yeah. quite a while. Vince, uh, Vince was uh, very uh, instrumental. It, it, Vince was up front there in terms of being a guy that would, that would request to hear my tape uh, when I was in the minors. Like he was, he was proactive about it. It wasn't just like, Hey, can I send you some, some audio sometime? Oh, sure. I'd love to have a listen. I mean, he's like calling me. Saying, Where is hey, my audio? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Send me some tape. I want to hear how it's going. I want to hear what you're doing. I That's want nice. to know. Yeah. And uh, th- those two guys were without you know question. But, you know, even getting, you know, I feel like I was still learning on the job when I got to Philly. So um, uh, I think everybody you're around, you learn a little bit from. Um, you, you take what you've what you like from other guys and you take what you think you can pull off from other guys, which, you know, I mean, you you only got what you got in terms of your pipes. You can't be Harry Callis all the time. So, uh, you got to let him do be himself and, and, you know, but, but that's something that Harry would tell you, you know, you get into a, a big market where the broadcasts matter a whole lot more than, you know, just wives, girlfriends, and, um, friends of the minor leaguers, uh, you know, Harry was the first one to tell you, be yourself, you know, just be you and everything will be fine. And, uh, you know, you'll, you'll do your job. You'll do it right. You'll do it well. And, um, you'll let the chips fall where they may, but where you're going to get in trouble is trying to be somebody you're not or be somebody else. Um, was that ever hard for you? Like, did you ever, when you started, was it hard to not be Eric or Vince or any of those guys? I, I didn't, I never felt like it was. I felt like I was just, um, you know, for the first part of my um, life in the minors, I, I felt like I was just trying to keep my head above water. So um, I, I spent a lot of time by that point, I was just focusing on my tape um, as much as possible. And I would listen a lot to my tape and try to change my tape, but I never, um, then, yeah, I never felt like I, and again, I don't know, Nobody's ever come to me and said, man, you sound just like Eric Nadell because it's not really like that. But there are things I do that are just like Eric Nadell um, that I try to emulate Eric. And part of that is just the idea that Eric is one, I think, of the true radio guys that does this. Right. He's one of the true guys that still uh, will tell you what color. Uh, stripes are on the uniform or what color details are on the uniform, what kind of details are on the uniform. And and I think we all, you know, sometimes we feel, I think in today's world, um, as I'm describing it, it's on a monitor next to me. Right. So in a way it feels weird to describe that as a 
modern day play-by-play guy, right? Because all of it's you. You're like, okay, for all the people that are maybe watching at home but have the radio on, this is just overkill for them, right? But <laughs> it's the understanding that there are people who are true radio listeners, or they're in the car, or um, or they've lost their sight, or they um, don't have access to a TV, or don't, you know, whatever. They're at the lake, or they're on a boat, or whatever. That there are people out there that are truly listening to this on the radio and you need to treat it like you're on the radio, even though everything it seems like we do now is somehow for video. You know what I mean? Sure. I want to ask you about a couple of calls in particular. Um, as I went back and listened to some things um, in preparation for this and, and uh, Halliday is no hitter in the playoffs um, was interesting to me from the standpoint of the way that you started the end of that call and like you said the the time of day and you mentioned the date um and then you mentioned that it was Halliday's first appearance in the playoffs as basically the scene like you basically set history before it unfolded on that final play um which is an interesting conscious decision and I think a really cool one in hindsight um and maybe I'm giving you more credit for thinking that out ahead of time, but what was, what, what was your, what do you recall about that moment in time and calling that? Well, I think, um, I, in looking back, I mean, the fact that it, I was able to say that and then get so lucky as the game ended basically <laughs> on the next bit. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's just dumb luck. Um, broadcasters can do whatever they want to try to <laughs> set that thing up. Suppose Brandon Phillips fouls off six pitches in a row and then not as great. Right. Right. <laughs> so that's just dumb luck. Um, it is a conscious, it was a conscious decision to use the date and the time. Um, and it goes back to, I read a story that Vince Scully had done that um, during Sandy Koufax's. Um, I think it was a perfect game. Um, and he, I think it was, you know, he had the time was on the clock and he read it in you know, whatever nine, whatever in the city of angels. I don't remember if he used the date or not, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, yeah. I mean, again, it got lucky. I was lucky that it ended up being the play that ended the game, but it was a conscious decision to sort of time stamp it and give it the, the, I don't know. Like it's the date and the time and um, he's going to do this in his first ever playoff start kind of thing. You know, that had been the story going into it, mm. but you know, to, it wasn't how deep, like, like from a Phillies perspective, the story was not, are they going to beat the reds? Cause they all felt like they were going to beat the reds, right. That they were going to advance. So their team was really good. This is a, two-time National League champions at this point. The whole story was Roy Halladay is going to finally get to pitch in the postseason after all those years in Toronto when he didn't. And that's why he came here. And here he is, game one, first start, blah, blah, blah. Now he's going to do this. Unbelievable, right? Right. Um, So, yeah, it it was a conscious decision, but it was also – you know, dumb luck that <laughs> that Phillips put the ball in play, and that's how the game ended. Were you listening um, when they won the World Series? I know you were in a back room watching on TV, but could you hear Harry at that moment? Uh, I could hear him 
only a little bit uh, on an IFB. Like I had a headset, a wireless headset on because I was – but it didn't work very well under the stand, sure. which is where I was. Um, and once I got out on the field, I could start to hear – well, I could hear a little bit of it, but the crowd was so loud <laughs> it made it difficult. Um, so I didn't really hear it unfold as it happened. What was that moment like? Um, it was cool. It was, uh, for me, I mean, the whole lead up and the whole, uh, sort of atmosphere around it all was just amazing. And, and, uh, you know, the, the wait for two days and the electricity of the crowd to, to finish it off and to do it there. And you, you play what amounts to a two and a half inning game or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> like, like you talk about lightning with the lightning round, right? I mean, it's just like, it's going to be over fast. And, um, I, I remember, uh, standing on the mound as we came out on the field, you know, they let the, you know, the interviewer people come out on the field. And, um, I grabbed as the sort of the celebration scrum was breaking up and the, the players were starting to, not dispersed, but just sort of spread out a little bit. Anyway, um, I grabbed Victorino for an interview, Shane Victorino. And, uh, I just stood on the mound and I'm watching him. I'll never forget just watching him look up at the crowd. And like, first of all, you see the joy in his eyes and his face and his body and, and, uh, how, how much this meant to him and his teammates. Um, and then you see the same from the crowd, right? And you see him sort of bathing in that uh, emotion of the crowd. And I look up and I look around and, you know, I've been on big league ball fields. I don't walk onto the field very often, right? Yeah, you're not true. You're yeah. not you're not between the lines as a, as a broadcaster very often. Mostly in foul territory. Right, right. <laughs> And uh, a lot of times you get prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law <laughs> if you're not. Um, but I'm on the pitcher's mound, and I'm I'm just thinking to myself, how do you guys do it? You know, how do you guys do what you do, right? Um, and then you see the reaction of the crowd, and you start to get a small notion of why you do what you do, why this would be the coolest job in the world. Right. If you were, if you were good at it. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really, um, it was cool. And, you know, just to be around a lot of people who, I mean, I was young then I was new then. And, um, to be around a lot of people in the organization that had been there for years and years waiting for something like this to happen again. Um, you know, you always heard the old stories of 1980 and whatnot and, and what it was like to be in the parade and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it was, uh, it was cool. It was a cherished moment for sure. Did you talk to Harry about, um, the end of that game or, or I guess, have you ever thought about now since that time, what it would be like to call the final out of a world series? Yeah, I mean, you know, we were uh, we had gone back the next year, and it, and I would have gotten that chance had we won um, in two thousand nine, yeah. um, the year Harry passed away. Um, you know, the Phillies were very kind to me. Uh, I got to call every clinching, every final out, except for the clinching games. Um, as it turned out, you know, like whatever we 
we would just juggle the play-by-play. And so Harry did the ninth inning on all the games where we had a, had an opportunity to clinch the series, you know. And um, it was really, really uh, exciting for me to to be able to be like I, it was Harry's show and it was Harry's. He didn't get to call that in 1980. Um, you know, they the local announcers didn't get that chance then. And I know what that what that meant um, for him to miss out on that, but also, um, you know, for Phillies fans to, to sort of be robbed of their beloved Harry Callis calling their their team winning the World Series. So um, for me, it was. You know, I was so. I remember, you know, on the float, uh, Harry was on the on the, the trailer with us. You know, and um, we had us and the fanatic, and you know, the broadcasters basically were on the on the one of the first flatbeds in the parade. And we were before the parade really even started. We were stuck. They're kind of staging and trying to get people out of the street, and so we're just kind of not moving. We can't tell what's going on. Um, and we're just not moving um, for 20, 30, 40 minutes. And I mean, this crowd around our fl- float just showered Harry with affection um, over and over and over again. And to the point, I actually have a little bit of uh, like old school, like super aid video. It's terrible. But <laughs> I had like a video camera that I'd been given for my wedding, you know, back I don't know, 20 years earlier. <laughs> and I, but I, I, I brought it with me. I said, you know what? The battery's going to die. I'll run out of tape or something, but I might as well get what I can get while I can get it. And so I have some, a couple of great shots of, of Harry and he's just so taken by the reaction from the crowd and what he's um, sort of muttering under his breath. He just can't believe it. And he's so, overwhelmed by it and um he's brought he's basically brought to tears uh overseeing it you know up up close and and um you know obviously he died early the next year and and uh only a few games into the season so uh i think philly's fans are you know we certainly love the fact that he got a chance to see that and to call it and um and we're so blessed to have you know been a part of that ride with him i don't want to take too much more of your time but i do want to ask you um on a similar note being able to see all of that and you know kind of like become and witness part of philadelphia phillies history um you're a guy that is from dallas and worked for the rangers except for that three-year you know period where um you were up in kane county um and then you come to philadelphia a new part of the country a new team a new organization um what was the effort for you like to become accepted by a new fan base, to learn about a new fan base, to learn about a team in a way that um, you felt like an authority figure on it? And, and how did you go about ingraining yourself that way? Well, um, the learning part of it, uh, there's, I guess, a couple of things. I mean, I tried to, to, first of all, rely on people who had been there before me. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to Chris Wheeler, who was in our booth then. Um, you know, anytime something historic, uh, historical or, or, you know, I needed reference to, I mean, I could look up box scores on baseball <laughs> reference. Sure. 
but I could also go to wheels and say, Hey, I'm going to show you this box score from this game in 1978. And his memory was uncanny and he could, you know, and still can. I mean, he would have these great, you know, this texture to the whole thing, you know, uh, relationships between players, um, what it was like then, what, what the team was like then, what the city was like then, what the fans were like then. Um, so from that standpoint, I just tried to, uh, I, I, number one, I didn't want to come in and, and act like I knew what I was talking about at all times. Um, when I, especially when I didn't, um, you know, the whole fake it till you make it, I guess, but I, I didn't want to be disingenuous and be like, here I am this outsider, but don't worry. I know everything there is to know about the <laughs> Phillies. Right. Yeah. Cause I learned it all in, I mean, I got hired on February 23rd and it's now the 28th. Clearly I know everything there is to know. Right. So that's not real. Um, that's so, a heck of a crash course, by the way. Right. Exactly. Like, so I, if, if, I just want to find a place I, to live first. <laughs> yes, exactly. So if I, if it, if I go away and not know something, okay, that's okay. I feel like I'm, I'm just not going to act like a know-it-all. Um, I'll, I'll learn it in time. I think another thing that helped is that from a player standpoint and the way the organization was like the, the winds were shifting, like it was moving out of the, Jim Tomey, Bobby Brayu era and into the Jimmy Rollins, Chase Utley, Ryan Howard era. And so those things that happened in the near past, they were kind of past. And this was a new dawn really for, for the organization. I mean, that was the beginning of their, I got there in 2006 and they were in the playoff race. You know, that was the year they traded a Brayu. Um, they had traded a Tomey uh, prior. I mean, this was like, the start of a new era. So um, from that standpoint, I, I could kind of just ride that wave. Um, they were so good so quickly that we didn't have to spend a lot of time reminiscing, right. To kill time on the air. Right. Right. Um, and then um, as far as the fans accepting you, I think I honestly, and I've said this many times, I just feel like um, they liked Larry and Larry liked me, or at least he acted like it. <laughs> Philly is, um, I, I'm sure it's not like, un, not unlike a lot of other towns, um, that feel smaller. Right. And, um, in that, you know, somebody who knows somebody yep. and you vouch for that person. Yep. Right. And if he says you're good, then you're good. Right. <laughs> my, you know, my cousin, you know, Vito in South Philly, he <laughs> says, he says that Larry's a good dude. So I, I vouch for Larry. I'm good with Larry. Right. I need an electrician. You call your buddy and he's, Oh yeah, I got a buddy. Right. <laughs> like it's the same, it's the same thing. People liked Larry and Larry at least propped me up to be his buddy. So I think I got a lot of, I've said it before whatever the opposite of guilt by association is, that's what I got. <laughs> you know, I got acceptance by association, <laughs> if you will. Um, I, I got, I mean, maybe, maybe the same thing happens with another partner. I don't know, but I, I would hesitate to discount how much that meant to me being accepted by the fans of Philadelphia mm. in that 
in that a, I was with Larry and honestly, I've heard Pat Hughes with the Cubs tell this story so often the the team was good when I got there. <laughs> so, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I could be a, the world's greatest or the world's worst play by play guy. But the point is that almost every day I was bringing them good news. <laughs> right. And like Pat Hughes said, when he started with the Cubs, they lost their first 14 games out of the gate, right? Get rid of this like, Hughes guy. He's bad luck. Right, yeah. right. Like, who is this guy? Every time I turn on the radio, <laughs> he's telling me bad news. So I had kind of the opposite. Like, I, I was able to tell people good news a lot. And I think that makes a difference. And whether they realize it or not, I think fans, they're like, yeah, you know, it's cool. Like, there was this cool moment and, you know, Let's be honest. Jimmy Rollins did all the hard work. I just was there. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, so either the team was good and, you know, Larry vouched for me. I'd, I'd say those were two big things for me. Two remaining questions very quickly. Um, one of them, uh, what do you imagine broadcasting COVID baseball will look like? Um, mm. Like, can you, can you imagine doing radio from your a monitor in your house? Or is that not even a thought at this point? Um, Hopefully. Yeah, I mean, I've thought about the monitor thing, not for my house. I got three kids. It's just be a disaster. I could <laughs> never get any. Uh, it would never work. Um, so I think it, at the very minimum, I'd have to go to, um, like, say, an empty studio at the ballpark or sure. something like that. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not – it's not something I'd be real thrilled to do. Um I mean, I, I'll do it, obviously, um, if that's all that we can do, um, is do it off a monitor. I mean, there will be all kinds of new challenges. You know, I was reading about, you know, John Shambi and, and what he's been doing with the KBO. At least I'll know who the players are and, you know, uh, I won't have to take crash courses in, 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 in pronunciations and things like that. So, um, you know... I think we're all aware of the fact that this year is going to be very different and, uh, if we have a year and, um, you know, hopefully it's, it's something that, uh, hopefully it's something that we get the chance to do because I know a lot of fans, uh, yeah, I know a lot of fans want the opportunity to, to sit back and take in a ball game. I know it's been a rough time for a lot of people. So, and finally, um, I did a LaSalle women's basketball game with CBS uh, Sports Network a couple of years ago. Uh, their head coach is a guy named Mountain McGivelry, who's a Philly native. And yeah. He has a diary. It is leather bound. It is like 35 years old, um, where he has written reviews of every single place that sells a cheesesteak in the greater Philadelphia area. Um, wow. It was, it was actually quite incredible. Um, so these are his own reviews, his own reviews, like he, and it like grades the bread and also like everything, um, right. which is really all you have to grade. But. <laughs> um, I, I guess this is, this is a, a, I don't know if it's controversial for, for you to, to have to like pick sides, but, um, is, is there a favorite and is it under the radar? There is no favorite. I am, uh, I am an equal opportunity eater. I am so not a foodie. Um, number one, like <laughs> uh, Larry and I talk about all the time. We're both like garbage, you know, compactor, <laughs> trash compactors. Um, the cheesesteak's so, good then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, if it's yeah, honestly, if, if the bread is, 
is reasonable. Um, <laughs> like not stale. And if it's a nice soft roll, um, then I'm in like, I, and I can get behind it with, um, with all manner of preparation, you know, whether it's provolone or, you know, whiz or whatever, you know, I can, I can handle it. But, uh, if the bread sucks, then I'm out, you know? <laughs> so Texas roadhouse cheesesteaks it is then. Oh. Yeah, whatever, man. As long as, as long as the bread's good, I can start from there and, and uh, probably survive. Amazing. All right, that is Scott Fransky joining us here on Play by Play Cast. Many thanks to the voice of the Phillies, and fingers crossed that he has baseball games to call at some point here during the calendar year of 2020. One more thing that I'll finish off on, um, and and then we'll say goodbye. But you know, I love working in college athletics for the reason of I like being around college athletes. Um, I like the intensity that they put into the sports that they play. I love what it means when you play for your college and you wear that university's name on your shirt. Like there's, there's a different vibe um, when you go to like a Duke game or when you, you you know, name it. I I just, I love the energy around college athletics. Um, Not to say I don't like other sports, but like I, I happen to love college sports. And if I ever work in another, um, league or organization like I will still have a special place for college sports part of that that you witness is how the players grow and mature and develop and it's funny when you look back and you see like what somebody was like as a freshman what they're like as a senior um reminding yourself of that and you go like wow this person came a long way um was really cool last night with everything that's going on in this country uh Ishmael El Amin there's another email. Uh, Ishmael El Amin is one of the best basketball players at Ball State right now, shooting guard, uh, one of the best players in the Mid-American Conference. Uh, he is also from Minneapolis, and he is also black. Uh, his father is Khaled El Amin, the, the UConn great. And with everything that's happening in the country, particularly in Minneapolis, uh, Ish had the reaction you might expect, and he wanted to do something. And he helped organize, and I and I say help like he he was like one of the chief like two people three people I don't know exactly how many people were at the head of it. Helped organize a protest that was peaceful. It was beautiful, phenomenal march from campus to city hall in Muncie. Um, spoke at the beginning, spoke at the end. Uh, like three thousand people showed up. It was the first time I'd ever been to a protest. Um, or a march of that nature. And it was an incredible experience. And to think about the reason why we were all there was one thing. And then to think about the fact that here's this guy who I've covered as a basketball player and who fist bumps me before every game. Um, to think about the fact that he was the one that did it. Um, I texted him last night and I just said, you know, you did something amazing tonight. And I'm proud of you. And it was uh, it was amazing. It was cool. It was really cool. And uh, it's one of the great things about what we do and one of the great things about who we get to cover. So uh, with that in mind, hopefully we'll get to cover them again soon. Talk to you next week. This is Play by Playcast. My name is Joel Gadet, and we are out. And 
That will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.